Hi everyone, how you doing? And thank you for tuning in to the 227th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this episode is presented by HBO's The Defiant Ones, a docuseries that chronicles the unlikely yet unbreakable bond of trust and friendship between Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre, for your consideration in all categories, including outstanding documentary series. My guest today is a beloved comedy actor who became famous as part of TV's most celebrated sextet. He played Joey Tribbiani on NBC's massively popular comedy series Friends from 1994 through 2004, then was, rather infamously, part of a short-lived Friends spinoff, Joey, which ran on the Peacock Network from 2004 through 2006, and, most recently, from 2011 through 2017, he starred on yet another comedy series, Showtime's Episodes, essentially playing a heightened version of himself, Matt LeBlanc. LeBlanc is not only a fan favorite, but also an industry darling. Over the course of his 30 years in the business, he has landed seven Emmy noms, three for Friends and four for Episodes in the category of Best Actor in a Comedy Series, five Golden Globe noms for Best Actor in a TV Musical or Comedy, two for Friends, one for Joey, and two for Episodes, winning once in 2012 for his work on the first season of Episodes, and one SAG nom in the category of Best Actor in a Comedy Series for Friends. This summer, he is considered a serious threat to land another Emmy nom, which could lead to his first Emmy win for the final season of episodes, which came to an end in October. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by my good friend Aaron Couch, who is the senior editor of Heat Vision, our terrific blog devoted to fanboy entertainment. Aaron, thank you for joining us. Hey, thank you, Scott. So yesterday, Thursday, was the first official day of summer, and at midnight, Universal began rolling out what is expected to be the first huge blockbuster of the summer, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. This film, which was directed by Juan Antonio Bayona, the same guy who did The Impossible and A Monster Calls, comes 25 years after the original Jurassic Park, which was a VFX game changer and gave me nightmares for many years. 21 years after its first sequel, The Lost World Jurassic Park, 17 years after its second sequel, Jurassic Park 3, and three years after its third sequel, Jurassic World, which had the biggest June opening of any film in history, taking in nearly $209 million in its first week. You have seen this latest installment. How does it compare to these others? Yeah, you know, I actually liked it more than the previous Jurassic World movie. I thought it did something a little bit different, which is, you know, it's kind of apparent from the trailers that they're not going to spend the entire time at the park or on the <laughs> island. And that was cool. And yeah. I think what Bayona brought to it was a little bit more of a nuanced thing going on. Like, mm-hmm. you have a lot of empathy for the dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. It asks a lot of questions about what is our responsibility as humans mm-hmm. if we, you know, bring life into this world. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was good. Now, 2015's Jurassic World is, I think, the fourth biggest movie of all time. Mm-hmm. This movie is not going to get there. You don't it's, think so? I don't think so. I mean, if you look at the box office tracking, it's going to open significantly lower, mm-hmm. maybe akin to kind of Force Awakens versus Last Jedi. Right. You know, there was quite a drop off there. I mean, Last Jedi still made tons of money, but I don't think this is going to be as big as the first one. Is that just because people have not been asked to wait as long between installments, sort of like something else we'll talk about shortly, Solo, a Star Wars story, where it's just like, you know, the novelty has worn off a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, think about it. There were three Jurassic Park movies. Mm -hmm. It had been, I don't know, something like 13 years since the previous installment. Mm -hmm. And those sequels weren't particularly well received. Mm -hmm. So it had really been years since the first movie 
it's kind of like the prequels with Star Wars. Yeah. Those movies weren't well received. Finally, with Force Awakens, we had a great movie, right. and Star Wars is back. Jurassic Park was finally back, and and now it's yeah, the novelty is not there exactly. Interesting. Well, let me ask you about some of the other high-profile movies that rolled out before the summer, but are still going into the summer, and then also about some of the high-profile movies that are still to come this summer. First, those that are already in progress. It's been a big year so far for horror movies. Paramount's A Quiet Place, directed by John Krasinski and starring his wife, Emily Blunt, cost $17 million and has grossed nearly $187 million domestically. And then A24's Hereditary, directed by this 31-year-old guy, Ari Aster, and starring Tony Collette, cost $10 million and has grossed more than $31 million domestically. These are not your throwaway horror movies of the sort that I guess we're sort of used to, but there's something a little deeper about them. Is that the reason why they are clicking? People do respond to smart movies still? Yeah, I mean, it seems like, you know, everybody will point to Get Out as kind of starting the trend, and and people talk about this term elevated horror, Mm -hmm. which is supposedly horror like Get Out or A Quiet Place that, you know, is a little bit classier, maybe means a little bit more, and if you talk to horror fans, they they kind of bristle at that term because <laughs> they say, hey, horror has always meant something. It's right. always been about this. But it does seem like, you know, whether you like the term or not, it is paying off at the box office now. I mean, people, this is what kind of what people want is is these these smarter, smarter takes, I guess. And they both have a little bit of Oscar buzz around them. Certainly, people are talking about in the actress race, both Emily Blunt from A Quiet Place and now Tony Collette from Hereditary. It's interesting. Again, it does come back to get out that, you know, the Academy long had sort of a bias toward genre fair, but certainly after last year with The Shape of Water and Get Out doing so well, it suggests that maybe these efforts to revamp the membership of the Academy are also causing them to be a little more open-minded about what great movies are. But moving on to two other movies that began rolling out before the summer and are still hanging on a little bit. These were kind of disappointments from Disney. That's something, a phrase you don't hear often, disappointments from Disney. But basically, after the phenomenal success early in the year of Black Panther, Disney then released Ava DuVernay's A Wrinkle in Time, which was a $103 million adaptation of a well-known novel of the same name, of course. And then also Ron Howard's Solo, A Star Wars Story, which we mentioned earlier. This was a roughly $275 million spinoff of the most famous franchise in movie history, and neither did very well at the box office. What is that about? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think Solo is kind of the the easier one to answer, right, which is people keep saying that, well, we just, you know, Star Wars is becoming less special. I mean, this this movie really didn't tell you anything you didn't know already. It didn't show you anything that you really needed to know. It wasn't even like Rogue One, which was also a prequel, mm-hmm. but it was all new characters. You didn't know what was going... You you in a sense, knew what would happen. Yeah. They're going to steal the Death Star plans. Right. But you did not know where it was going. Where this one, oh, he's going to meet Lando, and you know he's a guy that likes flying spaceships. <laughs> I mean, there just wasn't anything there to really make you go, I need to go see this. Unlike even Last Jedi, it was divisive, but you wanted to know, who are Ray's parents? Are they going to answer right. all these questions? They didn't answer them, but people still wanted to go see it. There's right. that level of excitement for that. For well, so they're new. calling it Star Wars fatigue because it's just these guys are... I guess, alternating between a spinoff and a main, whatever you'd call it, a main installment, a part of the main franchise, almost every year, basically every year, right? And that's just more than even Star Wars rabbit fans want. Right. This was the first time where there was basically, I think, a a six-month window. Mm -hmm. Usually it was an entire year. So six months was just too soon. You know, I think Disney may have thought, 
Well, Marvel can release a movie every four months, right. but those Marvel movies are different. You have Black Panther, Ant-Man, Avengers. They're not the same. Star Wars, there's a little bit of a, it's the same thing every time, yeah. right? You're not having these different genres within it. And this one hasn't even cracked $200 million domestically. I think it's the lowest grossing of any Star Wars movie, spinoff, or main one ever, and has been described in some circles as, quote-unquote, the movie nobody wanted. And I know that Disney, as you've just written, is still processing. It's been a humbling experience for Disney. Yeah, you know, they haven't actually officially dated any movies other than J.J. Abrams' Episode Nine for mm-hmm. uh, December 2019. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we knew from from sourcing that they were working on an Obi-Wan movie, hopefully with Ewan McGregor. There mm-hmm. were uh, James Mangold's developing a, yeah. a Boba Fett spinoff. You know, while none of those are officially greenlit, they, the, the solo disappointment has caused them to kind of reassess what they're going to do with this stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. going into Solo, it would be a natural fit to say, hey, we really need to fast track a Donald Glover, Lando Calrissian movie because mm-hmm. people loved him from the movie. Right. But if the movie is such a disappointment, that's probably not on the fast track anymore. Right. You know, A Wrinkle in Time, meanwhile, first $100 million movie ever directed by a black woman, and it just did not perform really. It's now just crossed the $100 million mark domestically because... It looks like Disney upped the number of theaters in recent weeks as it was getting, it looked like that number was attainable. I guess symbolically that's significant that at least its domestic haul is going to be almost what its budget was, maybe a little over that. But those aren't the kinds of numbers Disney was hoping for. Some people have said maybe it's a case of the book really was unfilmable. Mm -hmm. there, There was just something there where audiences weren't really responding to it. You know, a lot of people... Did like it if you look, look on social media. Mm-hmm. A lot of people like the representation and, yeah. and the message of it, a very positive message. Yeah. But maybe it just wasn't the kind of thing where people were rushing out to see it for whatever reason, you know. And and for me, it was a little bit of a I'm an adult, and it was a little bit of a kids movie, yeah. which is actually great because yeah. kids need movies. Yeah, I think we're so used to kid properties like Marvel being made for adults that we think when we actually see a real kids movie, we go, oh, I didn't really relate. But that's kind of the point, though. It's not for me, right? Well, I wonder if that was maybe ultimately just a marketing problem because maybe people just didn't really understand who it was aimed at. Yeah, that that definitely could have been the case, right? But I've talked to parents whose kids loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, Disney has had tremendous success through uh, another segment of its business, the Pixar side of things, where The Incredibles 2 had a record-breaking opening weekend last weekend. Its $100 million opening weekend gross was the highest for any animated film ever and one of the top 10 openings of any film ever, animated or otherwise. What does this mean for Pixar at a time when they've just lost their their leader, John Lasseter, who was caught up in the whole Me Too thing and who has now been replaced by Pete Docter and Jennifer Lee, two filmmakers who have worked at Pixar? And then why do you think this sequel, 14 years after the original Incredibles, has really resonated so much? It just seems to me that people who were kids 14 years ago and loved it have probably aged out of the Target demo, but... I guess a whole new generation's been been raised on the on the DVD or streaming of it. I, who kn- I'd be curious what you think that's all about. Yeah, I mean, I guess we'll see. These movies take so long to make that the kind of the effect of Lasseter's exit will take a little while to mm-hmm. to see how that goes. I mean, he's certainly one of the f- top credits on there when you when you watch the movie. Executive produced by John Lasseter mm-hmm. is one of the first things I I remember seeing. Yeah. You know, so they've made some changes now for obvious reasons, and and I guess they'll just we'll, we'll see how it goes. But yeah. obviously, Incredibles. I think I don't think that people age out of Incredibles really. You know, it really was an all ages movie, and you don't actually 
people say that all the time, but this actually was. I remember mm-hmm. seeing it with my grandmother, the mm-hmm. first one. Mm-hmm. She loved it. My whole family loved nice. it. And the great thing about this kind of sequel is, you know, movies like Zoolander or Dumb and Dumber, people beg for years, <laughs> please make a sequel. Right. And then they make it and it's terrible. Right. You know, the, the magic isn't there. But if you have Brad Bird, the same actors, the actors have aged, but the characters don't have to. Right. So it's not... There's no issue there where that can make things awkward, you know, if you wait 10 years to make a sequel to a comedy. But this one kind of seamlessly just worked. True. Well, looking ahead to the rest of the summer, I just want to ask you about a few titles that are higher profile ones on the schedule. Disney's releasing Ant-Man and the Wasp on July 6th, speaking of sequels. Then Universal's dropping Skyscraper starring The Rock on July 12th. Paramount's got Tom Cruise back in a Mission Impossible movie. This one subtitled Fallout. On July 27th, I know there are plenty of others as well. What do we know about these, and and what are you most looking forward to for the rest of the for the next few months? Yeah, I'm I'm definitely a a, a Marvel faithful. So I mean, Ant Man, whatever the Marvel movie will always be the one I'm looking forward to. So <laughs> Ant Man and Wasp, which is interesting though, it's you know it's their lowest key franchise coming out after their biggest movie ever, Avengers: Infinity mm-hmm. War. So it'll be. You know, this movie is set before the events of Avengers. Oh. So it'll be interesting to see, though, this lower stakes type of thing. Is is that a palate cleanser? Are mm-hmm. people ready to see something a little bit more fun and carefree? Or will they not find it as powerful and intriguing, you know? Interesting. Skyscraper with The Rock. Yeah, I don't think I, I have seen it. I think the embargo's still up, so I can't see can't anything say much, other than yeah. that I did like it. Yeah. This was an interesting case where it's clearly made for the Chinese audience, a Chinese audience. It's a legendary movie, mm-hmm. but it, it's one where, you know, Hollywood often casts Chinese actors to get the international audience. And sometimes people call it out for saying this is, mm-hmm. you know, you didn't give these people a great role. Right, this, just they're pandering. just in there. Yeah. I think people will be surprised in this one. The characters actually all hold up. Wow. So I think that has a lot of potential, at least overseas. I don't know. Here, Rampage right. just came out, so I don't know if people have rock fatigue, <laughs> but it's possible, you know. Right. And I see he's now lined up a movie probably a couple years down the road, though, with Gal Gadot. Right. Yes, exactly. I believe directed by the same director of Skyscraper. Oh, so. interesting. Okay. Yeah. And then what about Mission Impossible? Can it, What number is this? Number... Yeah, this is number six. Okay. And <laughs> like the last few movies, the marketing is all about the one signature stunt. In this case, it's uh-huh. a, a really high skydiving scene. That's all Tom Cruise is talking about for the last, you know, <laughs> three months or so. Right. But those are always uh, dependable, faithful, yeah. or, uh, you know, people go to those. They seem to enjoy them. And you kind of, you know, he, he still delivers something new every time. It's true. I, I mean, love the last one. He still got it. He's how old is he now? 50 yeah, something years, I think. Oh, my God. Uh, unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. And then we'll see him in a, what, a year or two in the Top Gun sequel. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm pretty excited yeah, for. Yeah, too. Yeah. Other just general things to look forward to, Creed 2, we see a trailer now. That's coming out, what, end of this year? Yeah, Creed 2 is coming out, I think, around Thanksgiving, so three years after the first one, and uh, the, the trailer dropped, and the, po- the reaction was pretty positive, you know? I mean, Ryan Coogler, the director of the first one, has gone on to be the biggest yeah. director in the world now and he's so, not directing this one though not directing this one and so i think that's kind of the question mark is yeah. can they retain the magic Without but them, yeah. the, the, the reaction was pretty positive wonder woman 1984 the sequel to wonder woman has begun production in dc this is of course appropriately enough a dc comics project and they have had some executive turnover lately and actually have only one other release this year aquaman so is it maybe not surprising that they are hyping this one up already? It's just something to keep their 
fan base, you know, jazz until until it comes out, I guess, next year. Yeah, this is absolutely the closest property they have to a Marvel property mm-hmm. in the sense that you can show a picture, you know, a year early and people will legitimately be excited about it. I mean, they revealed that Chris Pine is back for this one somehow. <laughs> no one's <And> ever dead. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's set in the 80s. People, uh, I mean, come on, everything's set in the 80s now. Right, yeah. So it seems like the magic thing they need right now, keep that goodwill going. And it kind of like we're talking about with Lucasfilm, I mean, Warner Brothers DC arm, they're trying to refocus and figure out what works and, and what to do because... There's been a long time where they, you know, kind of been developing everything. Let's develop four Harley Quinn movies and hopefully one of them <laughs> happens, Sticks. you know. Yeah. So I think they're really refocusing. So we'll right. see what happens. Yeah. What about over at Fox? They are obviously in the middle of a, a bidding war between Disney and Comcast. Disney appears to have the edge. Why is a place like Fox appealing to Disney aside from everyone's obviously trying to grab up IP, but Fox specifically, what would the value of that be to Disney if they end up closing that deal? Well, I mean, one thing in particular is Fox has the license to a number of Marvel characters, most notably the X-Men and Fantastic Four. So if you're looking to, okay, we've just finished 10 years of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. How do we get 10 more years out of this? Introducing Wolverine to that universe sounds like a pretty good way to do it to me, you know? I think Fantastic Four is another one where there's never been a good Fantastic Four movie, but they were the f- kind of the first Marvel superhero team. Yeah. And if you did it right, you gave it to Kevin Feige, that could be another Guardians of the Galaxy level hit, you know? I mean, they're such great characters. It's just they've never been done properly. Yeah. Let's close on a... I wish I could say it's a, a happy note, but it's not. But it, it is something that everybody's talking about this week, and that is this new Rolling Stone profile of Johnny Depp, who has obviously been one of the most beloved actors of our lifetime, yours and mine, and has really been a fanboy favorite since over the last 15 years, since the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, at least. And yet, by all indications, I mean, we had a story, I think Stephen Galloway did here at THR, that suggested that he was in some sort of a weird situation where he was almost bankrupt, despite having made hundreds of millions of dollars over the years. Now we're getting a little bit more of a perspective from inside the Depp camp, because this piece is the result of a guy spending about 72 hours with him. Basically, Johnny Depp reached out, his camp reached out to this writer going around his own publicist to make this happen. That's always a questionable move. Why do you think he did that? And what do you think the effect of this piece actually is now that people are, are, are reading it? Yeah, I mean, well, I'm not sure why he did it. I, I would imagine that there's definitely been some some unsavory news stories about him over the years with, you know, his, his divorce and allegations of domestic abuse mm-hmm. and things like that. And he's gotten pushed back from, you know, fans of the Harry Potter franchise. He's in the Fantastic Beasts movies. And I guess their next one's supposed to come out November 16th. Yeah. Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. So this is already in the can? I, I believe so. Yeah. yeah. They certainly aren't recasting him because J.K. Rowling put out a statement because you know, people were so upset about him still being involved in this franchise. She put out a statement kind of standing by him. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they're sticking with him. So I imagine that the hope was this profile would, you know, bring some goodwill, but it just doesn't seem like it was well thought out, right? No, because, because there was, yeah. it was a very interesting story, but it certainly didn't really do him any favors. No, I mean, they're talking about the fact that he he does appear to be having some real substance issues. And in fact, you know, 
on top of whatever financial issues he's dealing with. And I guess it's a matter of finger pointing between him and his old, his former managers. But yeah, I mean, I guess this piece doesn't give you, doesn't leave you feeling that he has a ton of credibility or stability in his life at the moment. He's drinking, smoking all the time, and also doesn't seem to be functioning even on the job. They're talking about an earpiece that he now requires, sort of like Brando did at the end. And I don't know, I just had a a horrible feeling reading it that it's almost like what we saw in the run-up to the end of Amy Winehouse, which was so sad because we saw this is a self-destructive person, and we all saw where it was appeared to be headed, and yet nobody could get into her circle to stop it. And I, I don't know about you, but I was watching this. It's just a sad thing to see somebody who was the king of the business and a favorite of all of ours just appears to be going down the toilet. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Aaron Couch, thank you so much for joining us. And I guess it's going to be a fun summer at the movies. Yeah, thanks, Scott. And now for my interview with Matt LeBlanc. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 50-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them, how a guy from a blue-collar Massachusetts family wound up modeling in New York for a while and then had a chance meeting while there that led to the beginning of his career as an actor, how, after several years of acting on Fox's Married with Children and various spinoffs of it, he wound up auditioning for Friends, how he was impacted personally and professionally by the creation and ascension of Friends and, after it came to an end, the creation and perceived failure of Joey, after which he didn't work again for five years, what it took to convince him to return to series TV on episodes to play a version of himself, and what that experience, shared by only a few others like Larry David, Louis C.K., and Ricky Gervais, was like, what his outlook is for the future, including his thoughts on the possibility of a Friends reboot and retirement, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We always begin with just some basic background. Where were you born and raised? What did your folks do for a living? Well, I was born in Newton, Massachusetts, my mom worked in a place that made like circuit boards and stuff like that. She was a quality control supervisor, and my dad was a mechanic. Mm-hmm. I tried to read back as far as I could other interviews you've done, and I, it sounds like, I guess because of Vietnam, maybe your dad wasn't around as much when you were a kid. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just Vietnam. They, my folks split up as oh, well. They, so, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I was reading because of him and because of your grandfather and because of just, I guess, a lot of people in your family, there was a very kind of blue-collar idea of what you should grow up and do. Yeah, pretty much everyone in my family goes to work with some sort of tool in their hand, mm-hmm. which and that's sort of where I was headed. And I think that's why I sort of spend a lot of time in the garage or in the barn, you know, kind of like fixing something, working on something that's kind of therapeutic. Yeah, and you went fairly down that road, right? I mean, you were... Yeah, I I went to school to be a carpenter, and I was an apprentice. You know, I worked as a carpenter's apprentice from the time I was about 14, you know, summers and weekends and stuff, and I worked for the shop teacher, you know, helping him with side jobs and things like that, and that's where I would have been. Yeah. Framing houses in the snow in New England in the winter is no fun. <laughs> no. <laughs> so I was like, eh, you know, there, there might be a better way. <laughs> tell jokes on TV. Right. It might be, it might be warmer. <laughs> <laughs> well, just to connect the dots from how you got to acting, I read that you wound up, I guess, probably right after high school, 
modeling, which I don't think too many people are from Newton maybe end up doing. How did that enter the picture? Uh, I went to college in Boston to Wentworth, and I dropped out in my first year. I was, you know, I studied uh, building construction technology and basically was learning stuff I already knew. So it seemed kind of silly to pay to learn how to do something mm-hmm. I could go get paid to do. Right. So I left there and I ended up going to New York just to visit a friend who was in school there. And I went into the city just to visit mm-hmm. and just kind of by chance met this manager who said that I could do commercials. Just kind of think that if I've got the story, the background of that story right, it's like one of these things that could be a movie itself. You're just like walking on Park Avenue and checking out a, a hot girl, basically? Yeah, yeah, met this girl, and she was on her way to an audition, and she, I went with her, and then she she said, you should meet my manager, it was, you know, that kind of did, and never really went out with the girl, but <laughs> <laughs> her manager became my manager doing commercials and stuff like that. But I had gone there originally to mm-hmm. sort of look and get some, someone had said to me, planted the seed about modeling, and you should go, and, you know, so I went and had some photos taken, and basically got burned for 300 bucks. On the same trip where you met the no, girl? No, that was back when you had to, like, you know, it was way before digital, so you went and took the pictures, and you went back to look at the developed <laughs> thing, and you went back again to, you know, it was all these trips to New York to go and do that, and it, just at the end, I was like, nah, this isn't for me. Right, so right when... thrown in the towel. Yeah. When I met this girl and then the manager, and then I, then I started doing commercials and stuff like that. Well, I gather that you were like the, the king of commercials. I saw that in the late 80s, you were doing Heinz, Levi's, Doritos, Coke. You could have you could have just probably made a nice living just doing that, right? Yeah. The first year I did it was pretty good, and then the second year was even better. And, you know, I started studying acting while I was doing the commercials and started going out for, you know, more drama-based things like, you know, TV shows right. and f- parts and films and stuff like that. Because you wanted to do that or because the manager's saying you should do that as well? Well, it just seemed like the next step. Yeah. You know, I had done a bunch of commercials and I was like, okay. And, you know, now I don't think that that commercial, that was a different time doing commercials in New York at that time. I mean, there was a sort of like a... You'd see the same group of people, you know, doing them a bunch of from them. ad to ad to ad mm-hmm. to ad, and uh, yeah, I think that's kind of dried up yeah. now. Yeah. So. Well, so you you're taking all these, you, you know, you're studying acting now. I guess for the first time, you're going out for real parts. What was the the first thing that was exciting for you as far as like an acting role? Would it be married with children, or was there something even? Like, it seems like for a number of years there, once you're now in the early 90s, you had a few years where it was sort of all within the Married with Children universe, just to remind people the the flagship show on Fox, but then also these two spinoffs, Top of the Heap, and also Vinny and Bobby, where you're Vinny, who's Al Bundy's buddy's son, and also the guy who's dating his daughter, right? How yeah. did you get into all that? Well, but prior to that, I had auditioned for a TV show while I was in New York, called TV 101. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like a earlier version. It was for CBS. It was like an earlier version of Beverly Hills 90210, but it dealt with a little more a little more dramatic storylines like, you know, teen pregnancy and mm-hmm. like drunk driving, death and things like that. And I flew out here to screen test for it, then stayed to do the pilot, then went back and there was a writer's strike. Then came back here when we went into production and got picked up. We did 18 episodes, and then 
it got canceled and then realized, oh, well, I kind of, I guess I live in LA now. I had a car and a dog and an right. apartment. And so I just stayed here. It seemed like there was more work here anyway. And then there was like bit things here and there. And, and then the Married with Children thing came up and we did that. Seven episodes of Top of the Heap. And then seven episodes of Vinnie and Bobby. And then there was kind of a drought for me. I think people would see that there was that string of work and assume that now you're kind of on people's radar and it's going to be smooth sailing from there. But it, you... It was not between that and friends? No. No. <laughs> you know, there's definitely some lean times. I made some money and I kinda of coasted on that till that was till that was gone. And then I think I've told this story before when friends happened, I literally had like, you know, eleven, twelve dollars in the How is that possible? I waited too long to go get a real job. <laughs> but I just got lucky. Right, right. How did you first hear about Friends? Just even just through my agent, the audition. Yeah, went in an audition. And did you ever get an explanation for how they came to you? Just even as a possible candidate for the show? I think they they auditioned a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I remember the final audition. It was between you know the part was the character breakdown. I think it was for a struggling actor in New York. It didn't say Italian American. Didn't say anything like that. Mm-hmm. So. I remember the final audition was between me and this one other guy, and he had like a cowboy hat on and <laughs> denim jacket and cowboy boots. And I've been thinking, well, this we're very different, <laughs> very very different. Right. And you know, luckily it went my way. Yeah. But when you had even just seen the script for the pilot, are you looking at it and saying this is extraordinary, or it was just another script? I thought it was funny. I thought it was good. I thought the characters were all really, really defined for a pilot. You know, that's the big challenge, I think, in a pilot, is you want to give each of the characters jokes that are very, very clear as to who they are. And it's very important to, you know, you have a lot of exposition in a pilot to put down. So mm-hmm. I think it's very important to be clear about who the characters are and in what neighborhood those particular characters are funny. Mm-hmm. So if you can be funny with exposition, that's the sort of the goal all the time. Because nobody wants to listen to information. Right, right, you right. Know, if you can make it interesting and funny, the information, then it's, it's a little more palatable. Right. I thought it was good. You know, let's be honest. Nobody knew. Yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, it's good. If I <laughs> if I get the job, it's great. Right. <laughs> if I don't get it, ah, that show sucks. Right. You know what I mean? There's, there was a bit of that, but right. it was like, there was something good, and it was Jim Burroughs, and it was NBC, and it was Breakoff and Crane, who had done Dream On. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this... Seem, seems right and it was the buzz everyone was talking about it and then the pilot well let's even if we can just stop before that so you go in for your audition you felt it went well yeah I auditioned up, I don't know how many times four or five really? times yeah I went in and then went back for a call back and then went back again and then went back again and then I remember the final one I was reading I read with Courtney Cox mm-hmm. who was already cast and she was really the only one of you guys who was kind of she was like well known, name. right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know about well known, but, but known. So, yeah, known. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Read with Courtney, and I thought the jokes worked, and it was seemed to be getting laughs. And but you, you know, you go in and do your best, and the audition process is horrible. <laughs> I mean, it's it's the just whole pilot hard. season process, right? But auditioning in yeah. general, it's just it's such a hard thing to. You know, you're at home and you get and you sort of rehearsing and you're getting you how you want to. There's so many variables in that sort of formula. Mm-hmm. You go in is the you know are you going to be reading with an actor? Are you going to be reading with the casting director? Sometimes you're reading with the person that's running the camera, <laughs> and they've done it 
now 75 right, times right. and they just don't care anymore and it's your shot so you and you have to manufacture so much i feel really sorry for actors especially me if i have to go <laughs> into an audition for something well and to add to your you know frustrations at, at having to audition had you had sort of an accident before you went in for i think the first of those auditions was there something where you messed up your face a little bit Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I told that story, and Marta Coffin thought it was really funny. I was out with a friend of mine. We were talking about that. You know, I had been in a couple of times. It wasn't the first audition. It was, right. I think, the, the producer's callback. And, you know, it was, I was getting closer and closer, and it was going good. And they really like you, so you're going in again on Wednesday, that kind of thing. Right. And it was with a buddy of mine. And he was like, it's, well, the show's about just six friends, right? And I was like, yeah, pretty much. So and they're just hanging out. And I go, yeah. And he goes, so then we should go hang out. <laughs> so you're not nervous. So, and we did. And I, like, fell. <laughs> that, a few drinks might have yeah, come into play. Yeah, I had a few drinks. And I fell, <laughs> sort of, <laughs> fell and got a big scratch on my nose. And went in, and Marta asked me about it. And I told her the story. And she thought it was really funny. <laughs> Your true commitment to the part. Well, that 1994 pilot season is now kind of legendary and really written about in history books, literally, because it produced both Friends and ER, which... Les had a good year that year. But yeah. Mr. Moonves. Yes. Dr. Moonves. Dr. Moon. <laughs> and on top of that, that was the year that they successfully spun off Chairs into Frasier, which was a coming oh, out. That's true, yeah. And also Seinfeld finally came into its own, so it was a good time to be at... It was must-see TV. Yeah. There was a lot of also, like I remember, I don't know if it was that season... But there was a lot of sort of network cross-promotion between shows. Like, I remember we did one that was about a blackout in New York. And Mad About You and Us and ER, like, the power went out. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. And all, so all the shows, that theme sort of carried through the whole night. It was really brilliant. That's interesting. Brilliant programming, I thought. It really worked. Well, so the, the whole idea, you mentioned Must See TV. For anyone who doesn't know exactly where that came from or what it meant can you just explain i know warren littlefield's written a book that kind of gets into it in an interesting way and we had him on this podcast talking a little but from your understanding how did that all come together you know i don't really know that'd be a better question for warren that yeah. was i guess you know his his baby i really like warren he's a nice guy yeah. he was really good to us i don't really know how it all came about it was a sort of a way i think to promote the lineup on yeah. thursday nights which was pretty amazing. Yeah, it had, it was like a catchphrase. It kind of stuck and worked. Yeah. I don't know if you could do something like that nowadays. The way people consume content right. now is so different. Well, you mentioned another person who was, you know, key in the early days, I think, of not just Friends, but maybe all of those shows on NBC, and that's Jim Burroughs. I was at a Director's Guild Awards thing where he was being honored, and one of the people presenting to him said he's made more pilots than a hooker at an airport hotel, which was a good line. But I mean, he was the yeah. pilot specialist. And I just wonder, you know, so you now you get cast on the show. I guess, first of all, do you remember finding out that you'd actually finally gotten it? I was living in Beechwood Canyon at the time in the Hollywood Hills. And I remember getting the call that I don't remember what I was doing at the time or what color shirt I was wearing or, anything, <laughs> no. or what I was eating. But it was a big deal. Yeah, you, got, you know, you got the pilot. And I, I had gotten pilot. That was my fourth show. Right. So I'd gotten stuff before and that you do a few and you know you're going to have, okay, the rent's going to be paid for right. a few months. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was kind right. of that kind of thing. Nobody knew what it was going to turn into. But I remember the night we shot the pilot, it, it, you could feel it in the air. Like the people that were around, people were like, this could be, 
you know, like the the heads of the network and the heads of the studio and Jim Burroughs and because they wouldn't put Burroughs on it if it wasn't like a priority, right? He wouldn't be doing a pilot for it. I think uh, I don't know if it's a matter of put Burroughs on it. It's a more of a matter of Jimmy sort of gets the pick of the litter. Yeah, he chooses the. Right. You know, everyone right. everything gets sent to him first. Right, and he decides what he thinks has a good shot, and then. Why is that though? What does he do that's so effective? You know, he has a. He's very interesting. There's Jim Burroughs, and then there's the rest. And I don't mean this as I've worked with some other great directors. Mm-hmm. I don't mean any disrespect to anybody, but Jim Burroughs. He's all about the story, 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 story. He, he's constantly looking to improve between the lines. He's looking for the truth. You know, his dad was a playwright. His dad wrote Guys and Dolls. And wow. So he kind of grew up around the theater and around playwrights. And, you know, on this on the new show I'm doing, Man With a Plan, he, he Stacy Keach plays my dad. And Jimmy told a funny story about Stacy Keach. He said they both went to Yale, and they were there at the same time. And Stacy was in the drama program, and Jimmy was in the playwrights program. And as a, to be in the playwrights program, you had to take a drama class. Mm-hmm. So he shows up for a first day of drama class, and the teacher said, "Okay, this is acting." And Stacy Keach gets up on stage. A yeah, very young, you know, right. Stacy Keach, and delivers this Shakespearean monologue, and it was like chilling Jimmy said <laughs> and, and then he goes that's acting right that's what the guy said Amazing. and they've been friends ever since that's so it's awesome. really funny to yeah. see the two of them together and that's Jimmy awesome. did is doing this new show for you as well Jimmy did the pilot and wow. he did a bunch in the first season and then Will and Grace took off and he said we're getting the band back together right. and that, now we don't have Jim Burrow anymore <laughs> which it is really it was really nice to see how excited he was to yeah. go and do that so I was like go go get it yeah yeah First of all, he's a lovely, lovely human being. He's a great guy. He's generous. He has a silliness to him. People are really intimidated by him because of his success. But he's he's not an ego-driven. Once you sort of get past your, the fact that you're working with Jim Burroughs, he's just this really smart, really funny, loves to laugh, just awesome guy. Yeah. He's a he's a really nice nice guy, and he's super talented. And his he just has a way of dealing with the writer. He he asks the writer to defend the writing, mm-hmm. and he asks why. And he doesn't say it shouldn't be this instead. He asks why is it this way, and I think that encourages the sort of flaws gently to the surface, yeah. and they can be massaged out. And it, it, he doesn't like like nobody doesn't like Jim Burroughs. Right. And he's also hands on with the actors, or how does he work yeah, with actors? Very hands on. He'll you know. He just always has interesting, fun ideas. Yeah. You know, he trusts your instincts. He encourages you to think outside the box. He's, he's I mean, look, I can't say enough yeah. good things about him. I love Jim Burroughs. I hear Jim Burroughs for president. Yeah. <laughs> can't be worse. <laughs> I saw a, came across a quote from Lisa Kudrow saying that there was a trip that you guys took, I think, after you shot the pilot, but before anyone, including you guys, had seen it. Yeah. yeah what was that trip? We went to... That was very interesting too. So Jim Burroughs took us all to Vegas, and you know none of us had any money, and he gave us all five hundred bucks to gamble with. And then we went to Spago, and we sat at the in the like main room at Spago at the very center, big round table. There's seven of us, the six cast members, and Jim Burroughs. And he said while we were sitting there eating dinner, he said, "Look around." And we all looked around. He said, "You see that?" And we were like, "What?" He said, "Nobody's looking at you." He said. Take a good look, because that's the last time you're going to be able to do this, <laughs> the six of you together. And he was right. Yeah. 
I mean, we all went to McDonald's the next night and nobody right. gave a shit. <laughs> it took a little while. <laughs> the, the pilot gets finished. We had Marta on this podcast and I was asking her about it. And she said that actually, initially, the pilot did not go over well, but it was not, nothing was different between the pilot originally and then what got approved, except that they didn't like the theme music originally. They, I guess it was originally shiny, happy people, she said, instead of I'll be there for you. And they said they were not happy, so they just redid it. And the only thing they changed, I guess, was the theme song. I don't remember the theme song being a problem. I, I do remember that Marta and David wrote the lyrics to yeah. the theme song, and then Marta's husband, Michael Sklaff, wrote the music, and they hired the Rembrandts right. to perform it. And it sounds and to, like this was all because they were getting shit about shiny, happy people. I don't know. <laughs> but who knows? But coming back to what Burroughs said to you guys in Vegas, how quickly and in what ways did your lives change once people saw the show? Once it went out there for the first well, time? Well, you know, when it first went out, it wasn't a huge hit right off the, right off the bat. We were in the top 20, mm-hmm. but it was that first season of reruns, that first summer that it like really took off and went inside the you know got into the top five and then it stayed there forever yeah so when we came back for second season it was a different ball game and that summer you know it was on in reruns and it was like kind of wow this is and i remember all of us sort of had to go get like i was in my apartment still and it just like the neighbors in the apartment building were like knocking on the door hey it's all right and i was like Okay, this is starting to get a little strange. So everybody sort of kind of migrated to houses with gates. Right. And it got. I remember one time I was watching the news. It was in the morning, and there was, I heard a helicopter over the house. It was when I bought my first house, and I turned on the TV to see if, what was going on. And they had a live, like a split. The screen was cut into six boxes. And there was a live shot of each of our houses, <laughs> the cast of Friends. And that helicopter was filming my house. And I remember looking at it going, wow, this is bizarre. And I looked close and I was like, wow, my roof is a mess. <laughs> so when the helicopter left, I got the ladder out and I went up there. And I was like, fuck, shit, I need to, I need to address my roof issues. <laughs> so thanks to the news for that. That's crazy. <laughs> so I imagine like when you're playing a part over... 10 years you're making tinkers to the way you go about it over that period it's not just a static thing how did you calibrate it to the point where you know that all right so joey's essentially like a a a lunkhead but he's got to be able to also not be a a total moron if there are times when you need him to be serious and moving and whatever at other points like is it sort of just left to you guys to figure that out or do you work with Marta and David, or how did you figure out the level at which to make this guy the way he was? Well, first of all, it's not a film, so it's not a finite story. You know what I mean? It's kind of infinite. It's always open-ended. So you don't really know where it's going. You kind of take baby steps in the development of things, and you try things. And some, in this, in the beginning of a series, you're kind of like, well, let's try this, and eh, that works okay, but what if we go in this direction? You, you know, everybody's kind of you know figuring it out, finding your way. Mm-hmm. And we had a, an amazing writing team on that show. We really did. Some awesome writers came through the door. And David Crane and Marta Kaufman did a great job sort of spearheading all that and, and guiding those really talented young writers who are now, you know, all yeah. you know developing other shows and they're all big shots and you know <laughs> in the writing world and TV now. But they were really, really, they had great foresight into what the show could be. And you guys were doing like, what, 18 to 24 episodes every year? 
Yeah, we did 22 a year. 22, I think some years we did maybe 23, 24, but... Yeah, but I mean, it was there was no lead in the show. It was really an ensemble. It was a true ensemble, mm -hmm. and we would all watch each other, and we would all sort of help one another, and we would like think, and support one another, and throw ideas around at each other. What do you think of this? What do you think of that? What, what is this funny this way or this way? Or, hey, what if you tried this? Mm -hmm. Or I don't know what to do here. What do you think? You know what I mean? It, it was really, it was great because I learned a, I learned an awful lot. Mm -hmm. from those five people I really did and I think we all learned from each other and it was a it was a great experience it was like an education in half hour comedy were you initially I know you you guys are all friendly now but as it was getting going were you particularly close with one of them we were all close we'd yeah. all eat our meals together I mean it was I remember Lisa Kudrow said we work harder on these relationships than we do on our marriages <laughs> and it was kind of true I mean it was right. really important to all of us to get along and we were patient with one another you know sure there's always bumps in the road mm -hmm. with everything but everybody was really understanding and it was good do you remember the origin story of how you doing like where did that come from was that you was it a writer I think it was written down in the script and it just was the way I said it one time was funny right and it kind of stuck If you go back and look through the sort of, you know, the catalog of, of episodes, I don't know that I said it that many times, really. I watched it the was, YouTube compilation today. There were a few, there were quite a few, but like, in it, I think it was, people loved it. Spread out over 10 over years. Over 10, yeah, of course, of course. It wasn't like something I said no, every no, episode, no, no, you know no. what I mean? Well, people be, loved it, yeah. Yeah, and it, it just kind of became this thing, and the actual conception of it was, it was just, you know, it was like a greeting. Yeah. And then it was like, well, maybe I could spin this in a way and, and it was yeah. funny and because Joey I think you know you said you used the word lunkhead earlier for me he was never dumb for me he was always just incorrect <laughs> he had his own sort of parallel universe right. logic right. stream of logic and I think the defining thing for that character was the move point thing which was really funny move point and can you remind if, if somebody doesn't know what you're talking about, just a little bit of a summary. So talking, I forget what the conversation was, but Joey says, it's it's a moo point. And Rachel says, I'm sorry, a moo point? <laughs> and Joey says, yeah, moo. Like, it's like a cow's opinion. Right. It doesn't matter. It's moo. And Rachel says, which is what a moot point is. Right. So it makes sense. And Rachel right. says, have I been living with Joey too long? Does that actually make sense? <laughs> so it was, it was, But it was kind of like a really sort of defining moment that one there was another time where Joey had a conversation with Monica about this girl he was dating and she was talking about you know being there sexually for her and he just that concept he just didn't understand <laughs> I don't know I'm not following you no I don't get you how much input would you have about your character and storyline just for instance I heard a couple of things I thought were interesting that in the very early days maybe even starting with the pilot You had, according to what I read, some concern that Joey was coming off as a little creepy just based on his interactions with the uh, women. Did you make a point about that? Yeah, I, I, and it was purely out of self-preservation. You know, I thought, how long can this go on? This is something that's really working here, this ensemble. And, he, you know, the guy across the hall is hitting on him all the time. That's going to get old. What if he you know tries to sleep with every other girl in new york except these three mm -hmm. they're like sisters and that kind of really worked joy became sort of this like 
safety blanket, this sort of protective big brother. If there was ever any kind of issue, oh, we're, I would, let's go get Joey. Right, right. You know, which was, and it was kind of fun. And was this and also the reason? I mean, I guess the original plan, from what I gathered but from they, Martin, I mean, we would pitch ideas. Yeah. But they they wrote it. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know what I mean. We had we would pitch jokes and stuff like that, and they wrote it. That one thing about me not you know not hitting on them so much was purely to make sure I stayed on the show. Well, but it seems like they they found it to be a pretty smart idea because originally, from what Marta said, the plan was for the central romance there. If there was one between the group, it was going to be you and Monica, Joey and Monica, and she said that they felt that that was because you two were sort of the, whatever this means, quote unquote, the most sexual close quote of the characters. But then it became Ross and Rachel, I guess, after you said that. I do. I wasn't aware of that. I always thought it was Ross and Rachel. I didn't, you know. You thought from the beginning. Well, in the pilot, yeah. You yeah. could see that Ross had been pining for Rachel and she shows up in the wedding dress. And right. I didn't know that the plan was to have well, who, who knows? That's Joey like, and Monica. This is, there's like, yes, that's a new, what Marta said. Yeah. And this Marta new, drinks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is secondhand, actually, Marta, because this, I guess there's a new book, I, I think it's called I'll Be There For You, oh. where they, I think a lot of you guys spoke to them, and they were quoting Marta as saying that, but I can't vouch for that one myself. Okay. How did you feel, though, in those later seasons when they started to have a little Joey Rachel exploration? I mean, was that, that sounds like it was Everybody kind of... felt awkward. Yeah? Yeah. The cast, none of us liked it at all. It felt like taboo to everybody and I remember we had a conversation with David we had a big group discussion because what we used to do is after run throughs and after rehearsal day we would sit with Marta, Kevin and David all of the writers and all of the cast in Monica's living room and we would go through we would do notes and everybody would sort of it was like a sort of brainstorming session which I thought was super productive and I really learned a lot that that was those were like like notes after the show was really really great I thought Anyway, yeah. so we, I remember in that note session, sort of talking about that, and they were they said, "Look, we understand what you're saying," and everybody was, "It's just it's wrong." I mean, Ross and Rachel are together just for Joey and Rachel. It's just, I, I, would Joey do that to Ross? Is that? And David Crane said, "I'll never forget it." He said, "It's like playing with fire. It's dangerous, but then when you're done, you put it away. You look back on, it, you go, remember when we played with fire?'" <laughs> and it was. You know, you have to be careful with right. fire, but there is something about it that's, you know, it demands your attention and yeah. it's intriguing and it's, and he was right. I mean, it was interesting. It was really interesting to explore. Yeah. And we didn't know where it was going to go. They didn't know where it was going to go. They, you know, obviously they said, you know, obviously we're concerned as well. Right. But there's something interesting that we like about it. So, and I think it was after that that we were all like, okay, well, let's see. And what's extra interesting to me about what you're what you're saying is that, you know, obviously episodes has echoes of different things from throughout your life. And in the I think in one of the first two or three episodes of episodes, you as quote unquote Matt say to your writers that you think that there should be a romance between him and the, the librarian. librarian. Yeah. That was actually the first scene. It's in the car with Stephen Mangan. Yeah. the Sean character. Yeah. That was the first scene shot of the series episodes. Really? Yeah, there's the very first scene I ever shot. Amazing. And but is that just purely coincidental, or is that saying, you know, what we've had conversations like this in in the course of my career? Let's 
bring this into the show. No, I had nothing to do nothing with that. Nothing to do with that. That was David Crane and Jeffrey Clarick yeah. wrote that, and I thought it was really clever. Yeah. You know, that, you know, how long do you think Friends would have lasted if Rachel was a lesbian? <laughs> the character felt you needed that sort of, that attraction, that sort of will they, won't they kind of thing. To sustain yourself over seasons and seasons of yeah. a show. Yeah. And it, the, the other thing that, that, that was an interesting device, that speech, was because what it also did was illustrate that the Matt LeBlanc on episodes knew the game mm -hmm. that he was in. He knew the yeah. business. He understood the game. Right. And it was eye-opening for the English writer, the character in the show, to be like, oh, he has a good point there. Absolutely, because I think the assumption up until that conversation where you explain your rationale was that... He just wants to have scenes with the hot librarian, you know, the actress on playing the, the hot librarian. Yeah, the assumption on those two characters' part, the husband and wife, Sean right. Beverly, they were like, Joey from Friends? Right. What? No. Right. It was a way to sort of validate my character in the series as a guy who has been around the block. It's right. sort of a, like a peek behind the curtain, if you will. Right. It was very, they did some really clever things. David and Jeffrey wrote episodes I'm really proud of. I mean, obviously, Friends I'm very proud of. Yeah, yeah. But episodes I'm really, really proud of as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that the writing has been spectacular, and they've sort of pushed me in directions that I didn't anticipate at times. Yeah. And they were very supportive when we got there. And it was it was a great experience. And Steve Mangan, Tamsin Gregg, and Kathleen Perkins, and the whole cast, yeah. John Pankow, everybody was just fantastic to work with. It Absolutely. was a good group. Well, I want to obviously get in more into episodes in a moment, but just to finish up connecting these dots to there, I guess one thing that I came across, I wonder if you can confirm. You don't want to talk about episodes. Of course you just I want do. To talk about Not friends. at all. Everybody no, wants no, to talk no. about friends. Well, I, I want to talk about both. <laughs> I was thinking when I, when I watched episodes, I was thinking back about watching episodes and your uh, TV executive there, Merck, it's like, I love your show. He says to the writers and then it turns out he hadn't seen it. I've, I've seen both. I like, I love both. So I, I definitely want to talk about episodes, but just a, a few final things here. Were you dyeing your hair during Friends? Because you now have, for, for a listener who, who can't see, very, you know, distinguished, nice gray hair. But you sit, you actually had that even Yeah, I started then, right? going gray on the sides in my, like, mid-20s. Really? And I remember just having to sit in the makeup chair and they would dye, you know, my sideburns and, you know, the temples. And, right. And then it got higher and higher and higher until it got to the point where I was just shampooing with hair right. dye in the shower. And then after Joey ended, I sort of said, I took some time off and I was just like, Fuck that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to let my hair go gray. Absolutely. As you look back at just the growing success season by season, I think your ratings went up with friends. What's at the root of why people loved it as much as they did? You know, it's a very interesting thing in terms of the broad appeal to the show. You know that old saying, birds of a feather flock together? So groups of friends, they're all very similar. Mm -hmm. You know, people are similar. But if you look closely at the show of friends, there's six very different characters you don't really see a group of friends like that. And that's something that no one really talks about. But you have the sort of ethereal hippie girl. You have the very sort of anal retentive girl. You have the, you know, girl that's living on daddy's wallet. You have the guy that's the sort of scientist. You have the waspy, quick-witted, you know, sarcastic guy. And you have this, like, sort of struggling actor, you know, dim-witted, like, out-for-the-girl kind of guy. So you have a very diverse cast. So within that large group of diversity, you, I think to an audience, 
everybody can relate in some way or another to at least one character, whether it be that's like me or my brother does that or my God, that's my sister or my cousin is just like that or my friend does the exact same thing or that's my mom or you know what I mean? Or my daughter's like that or you know what I mean? So it had a really broad demographic and it was very, it reached a lot of, a lot of different people and I think that was part of the big the big appeal to the show. And also, if you look back at it, we never did any topical jokes. Never. We did one in 10 years. One topical joke. Which was that? Is something happening with OJ? <laughs> that was the only topical joke. Right. And they felt it was a big enough deal, event-wise, that you could make a joke and it would never go out of stock. Because, the, and I think that's why the afterlife on Friends is so good. We right. dealt with things that are eternal. We dealt with trust, betrayal, love, family, you know what I mean? Things like that. But do you think today, if the if the show were on was on today, when everybody's sort There'd of there'd be more texting if the show was on today. Well, that that for sure. But there like, wasn't much texting. could they not address Trump or things that everybody's talking about? You don't have to address politics. It's escapism. Half hour comedy. It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to do all that. You can reflect opinions, but to you can have reflections and all that but to get into politics is you, you can and some shows are based on that kind of thing but those kind of shows when you look at historically they don't have an afterlife in syndication yeah they really don't and it you know and it's also you know what's that old saying opinions are like assholes right. everybody's got one you know what i mean so that's not what that show was about and it I wasn't think about politics one of the things i came across where you were saying when you figured out actually kind of where you guys stood what you meant to people was shortly after 9-11 right yeah there was a big thing i think it was on the cover of the la times uh, there was i don't know if it was the calendar section of the main paper talking about america needed its comfort food you know the, it was a brand new world we lived in after that and all those kind of theme chief heard all the quotes and everything and they sort of coined us as the comfort food you know clinging to things that were comfortable and I remember it's, it's sort of, we were all a bit taken aback by it. Because you didn't realize that you served that function for people? Yeah, I think at that point it seemed like it was bigger than a TV show. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, at the end of the day, it's just a TV show. It's not, you know, the cure for cancer or for rocket science. It's make some people laugh for a half hour mm -hmm. or 22 minutes. Right, right, <laughs> right. As that chapter of your life came to a close, were you basically, when you're shooting your final episodes, did you already know that you were going to be doing Joey? Oh, uh, yes. You did? Yeah, that, that deal was already in place. And Joey itself came about because they wanted to find a way to, or who wanted to find a way to keep this That going? deal came about because Schwimmer wasn't available. Wasn't available to do what? To do Ross. <laughs> Are you serious? No, come on. I don't know. I can't tell. You You got a good poker face. <laughs> and uh, Schwimmer said yes to Ross, the right. spinoff. It could have been different. Been different. Yeah. But the underlying thing was that the network wanted a spinoff. Is that what started that? Or, mm -hmm. yeah. And and then, why were you more open to continuing that? Well, it, it, from it wasn't like we all threw our hats in the ring to do a spinoff. Joey seemed like the character that made the most sense to do a spinoff of, because you know Chandler and Monica were together. Phoebe married Mike. Ross and Rachel had Emma. They went off together. And Joey was kind of left there, you know, as the dust settled, standing there. So right. send them to California, and <laughs> it was fun. I had a good time doing Joey. I thought it was a, there was a lot of pressure on that. I remember being at the upfronts and Jeff Zucker saying, 
you know, standing at the stage, on the stage at the upfronts that year, I think it was 05, mm-hmm. and he had it behind him on the big screen was a picture of our six faces, the cast of Friends, and he said something, I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was, you know, the gist of it was, Friends has come to an end, and the, the picture fades to black, but in his place is Joey, and it's just a picture of me. I was like, fuck, <laughs> no pressure there, Jesus. Right, because there it's like the expectation now is that you're just going to be able to carry yeah, it on. Yeah, the pressure was huge. I can lift the weight that six people were lifting. That's a, those are big shoes to fill. And so you already, it seems like, had a particularly special relationship with David Crane, especially, right? And you wanted him to come do this? Yeah, I wanted David to write it, but David wanted a vacation <laughs> Which I, I mean the you know the actors we have the you know we put in the least amount of time we work hard but the writers are the ones there late nights fixing the problems and they come back early from their summer break to sort of break stories and they are doing the lion's share of the work they really are hats off to them they're great and i, I you know after 10 years of working with david yeah well, who better to write it but the network didn't want to wait they wanted to go straight away Just looking back now would I put my foot down and said I'm not doing it without David? Probably. Yeah. Well, it's just interesting how kind of history gets rewritten because now it's it's often made out to be like a cautionary tale. Don't do a spinoff unless you're sure you want to do it or whatever. But like the reality is, if it was not the direct offspring of Friends, it was just its own show. The ratings were pretty solid. There was a lot of things going on. There was a big regime change at the network. There was, you know, there was a lot of things going on, mm-hmm. and it wasn't on the new regime's development, and it wasn't their their baby, so that it didn't get the care it deserved. I thought it was a good show. Mm-hmm. I really did. Was it Friends? No, it wasn't. Nothing would have been. Right. But I, I was proud of it. I thought it was a good show. The way it ended with that. Was that the reason that for the next five years you just kind of laid low? Or you? Well, well, I was just, I was like, it's 12 years. Yeah. You know, on the same stage. I was like, I need a break. Yeah. And I went to take a, I was going to take a year off. And I ended up <laughs> taking like five years or yeah. six years, whatever it was. But it sounds like it was, it was also an eventful time. time in just your own life, too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you say on the same stage, literally on the same stage, right? This is. 24 at Warner Brothers, right? This is the same, same place you guys did, took Friends? the whole crew. I took everybody. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Let's keep the party going, I said. Yeah. Was there ever any thought at any point during Friends, during Joey, after Joey? You know, for a lot of people, particularly 1990s, early 2000s period that we're talking about, less so today, but the ideal for a lot of people was like, or the top of the mountain was film. I want to be a film guy. Now it's actually TV's the the considered cooler to yeah, be. Yeah, there was, you know, during Friends, everybody on the summer break, we know I want to do a film, I want to do a film. And if I could go back and look at that again, I might have made some different choices or not done anything and just enjoyed the summer off. But you don't know. No one knew what Friends was going to be when, during that summer. You know, the between first and second season of Friends, I went and did the monkey baseball movie. It was supposed to be a Dis- like a Disney-esque kids movie that Universal was doing. I went to some screenings after it was done. I saw little kids having a great time. Yeah. Kids loved it. Yeah. You know, so it, it did what it was designed to do. And then, you know, I did another one that was probably not a great choice. I haven't made great choices in films, but so what? But they were was good experiences. being a film actor on top of being in, on a TV show, was that important? Back then, yeah. That was sort of, you wanted to, like, movies were where it was at. You wanted to get into movies and 
I think that's how everybody thought. Now, you know, I'm 50. I'll be 51 this summer. I could give a shit about being in the movie business. <laughs> right. I just want some time off. <laughs> right. <laughs> Was directing something that ever started to appeal to you? I know that Schwimmer we had on this podcast, I think he started doing it while Friends was yeah, still on, Yeah, he directed on, right? a bunch of episodes of Friends, yeah. Never really appealed to you, though? Or? It's more appealing now than it was then. Yeah. I don't know if it's something I'll want to do or not. I, I don't really know. Yeah. So I don't think about it too much. So Friends ends in 2004. Episode starts in 2011. Over those seven years, were you still, you know, regularly in touch with David? Not super regularly, no. But, you know, from time to time, check in. Yeah. Only because, I guess, you get this call, and I wondered how out of the blue it was that, what, he and his partner, Jeffrey, had an idea? Yeah, they called and they said, hey, we got an idea for a show. I said, really? Okay, great. Let's do it. They said, do you want to hear what the idea is? I said, oh, yeah, fine, okay. I just, there's a trust level there. Right. I know right. that, the thing that I know about working with David and Jeffrey is, are people going to watch it? Who knows? You don't, you don't know, that's out of your control. Is it going to be good? I would bet that it would be good. Right. I, I know that the quality of the of the material will be good. I know that the production value will be good because they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Will people watch it? That's out of everyone's hands. Right. That's up to the network. What's it up against? What's the time slot? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's so many variables you don't have control over. So they wouldn't tell you what it was over the phone, but you... No, we got together at a hotel. We had lunch in Santa Barbara, and they pitched to me the entire first season with no notes just off the top of their head. What are you thinking when they're telling you that just the underlying concept that we're going to be taking you, Matt yeah. LeBlanc, a real person, and putting quotes around your name, essentially? But, like, I would be concerned. That's my only question, yeah. yeah. I, like, what, I don't understand that I'm playing myself. What does that mean? They said, well, it's not a documentary. Right. It's a character. It's basically we're going to take the public's perception of celebrity, use your name because you because of friends and the fame. We're going to use your name and make a fictitious Matt LeBlanc. And... You know, we're in it together. If we go step by step, if it's something you don't like, we don't do it. Was there any kind of point of reference like, hey, because I guess Curb, your enthusiasm was already on. It's obviously a very different show, but the idea that you're essentially playing a guy who shares your name and has a lot of other things in common, like how easily were you able to wrap your head around what they were trying to do? Pretty easily, I guess. Yeah, it wasn't crazy. And like I said, I, you know, I really trust, trusted them. I guess it is a fine line, though, right? Because there are times when they're going to say things about the Matt on the show that, I mean, I would think are totally unobjectionable to you. Everybody, Nobody's going to complain if they say you're, you know, you have a <laughs> nice penis or whatever. But then they're going to, if you, if they tell you to go say to your ex-wife, go call your ex-wife, uh, see you next Tuesday, th- 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 are there conversations about things like that? Or are you just kind of... Like, because again, I guess there would be potentially implications in your own real yeah. life. The the thing about calling my in the show, my ex wife, I see you next Tuesday. I remember having some really sort of interesting. You know, I was like, well, that's harsh, but I understand. But what if that was like a pet name, <laughs> and it was a really interesting idea? That if if that was the pet name, like Honey, come on, sweetie, or Cupcake, or whatever you that lovey dovey thing that people have in relationships what if that was the pet name right. it would really very quickly and very economically give insight into what those two characters marriage must have been like. like yeah yeah and i thought it was really clever to go and do that way yeah. and they i pitched that as an idea to, to how to call her that yeah and david and jeffrey were, they liked it 
if someone other than David and Jeffrey had pitched you the same concept, I don't know that I would have done it because they're just it depends so much on being able to trust the people you're collaborating well, with. You know, sort of this parody of myself. It needed to be someone I could really trust. Now, was there ever a time where you really felt you needed to push back and say, you know what, let's not include that because yeah, of these one, concerns? There was one time. And without divulging more than you want? Like, I did it, it was one, one joke. Went, I thought it was a series of jokes that led up to, I thought the last one was just a little too far. Mm-hmm. And they were like, yeah, we were kind of, we were on the fence about it, so we thought we'd see, take your temperature on it. And I was like, yeah, I just think it's, and they were like, all right. Yeah. And we backed off just the tail, just the last one we right. took away. But you've had a made a good point, which is that like when people say, "Are you worried that people are going to confuse that Matt LeBlanc for the real one?" You said w- after playing Joey for ten years or whatever, they assume you're Joey, right? I mean, it doesn't. They're going to assume no matter. Who. I think that's your job as an actor. Your job is to make people believe what you're saying is the truth. Right. You know, I remember doing Lost in Space, and I walked down the street with Gary Oldman. We were going to dinner. And people would look at him, and they were afraid of him because he's known for playing, you know, monsters and stuff. Right, right. I was like, that's cool. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. He's how did a little, they treat you? He's they, a little peanut of a guy. Right, right, right. You know. Well, what did you find after? How did people assume you are after Friends? Everybody wanted to be friends with Joey. Joey was that guy everybody wanted to hang out with. Girls liked him. Guys liked him. He was, you know, a TV show is different than a film. TV show's on in the bedroom. It's on when you're brushing your teeth. It's on when you're having your family dinner. A lot of times the TV's on. And it's always, it's the same characters in a lot of different situations mm-hmm. that sort of intertwine themselves into people's lives. So they feel like there's a relationship there. A film, when you go see a film, not so much anymore, but it used to be an event. You would go to dinner and a movie, and you watch it on the big screen. It was larger than life. And television was a little more, oh, I know these people have a relationship with these people because it's a lot of different scenarios you see those characters in, whereas a film is a finite mm-hmm. sort of period of time in the story. So it has a different effect. And, you know, people like that character. Oh, that's interesting. They like all six of those characters, yeah. you know. Yeah. Well, the thing that surprised me the most, you guys shot largely in England, right? I mean, it's a sh- it's so crazy because it's a show that's essentially set in and around Hollywood. but Especially the first season, we shot the whole thing in the UK, so there's a lot of special effects. More special effects than any other half-hour comedy. That's crazy. <laughs> you don't think of no, spe- green screen. <laughs> that was because, what, it was just budget, budget to do it, yeah. yeah. Was it strange, not asking to say good or bad, but strange to now on episodes be back with David but not have Marta there when these guys were essentially both so present. Well, Jeffrey was always around on Friends, and on Jeffrey Friends. was sort of like an uncredited writer on Friends. He was, let me just set the record straight, yeah. it was it was Marta and David, but Jeffrey Cleric was around a lot. Okay, I didn't know And that. he was helpful in the room and things like that. Yeah, I mean, that's just true. Yeah. And David and Jeffrey together on this was a, was a great team, mm-hmm. as well as Marta and David were. Yeah. It's good writing. Yeah. You know, it starts on the page. You know, it's funny. It's like, you know, when someone tells you a story, yeah. if it's a shitty story, it's really hard to stay interested. Right. It has to be a good story to start with. You can have a great storyteller tell you a shitty story. It's still a shitty right. story. <laughs> but if you have a great storyteller tell you a great story, now you got something special. Right, right. You know? Is it true? I guess it was a constant with both friends and episodes that they'll take input, whatever, but they do not want improvisation. you got to stick to the words, right? 
on Friends, and it's the same with Man with a Plan. When it's a multicam sitcom, mm-hmm. you have four cameras, you have guys on the catwalk, the sound department on telescopic fishpole booms to pick up the sound. They're all on line cues. So the last word of your line, then they're jumping, they're moving their shot to the next. So you can improvise in the rehearsal process, but when it comes time to shoot it, there's no room for that. Now, that said, there are shows that are a little looser, Mm -hmm. but David Crane, and in my opinion, the writer writes is not versus isn't for a reason. Right. So it's my job to use those words that are given to me. That's the puzzle. You have to figure that out. That's the challenge. If you abbreviate and you, you know, condense and leave things out and the gist of that, that doesn't fly. No. Comedy has a rhythm to it. You know what I mean? There's a, it's like bars of music. There's a dance. Things happen in threes. There's a lot of rules to it. And there's a lot, you know, this sometimes this sounds funnier than this. Why? I don't know. It just does. You have to have an ear, you develop an ear for it. So in my opinion, you need to, as the actor, respect the time that in the, I've been in the writer's room and I've you know, been a fly on the wall and see them, they will obsess about little things like that. Should it be is not or should it be isn't? Should it be banana or should it be orange? Should it be, you know what I mean? And they, they're smart people and they have group discussions and they pull at threads and logic threads and things like that. And they've, this is what they've come up with. Now they're not always right, Sometimes you put it up on his feet and they come down and they watch it and they see it and they go, that doesn't really work. Sometimes it works sitting around the table in theory, but when you put it up on his feet, it doesn't work. That's why it's called the rehearsal process and you massage things and you you make it better and better and better and better and better. And on episodes with single camera, David and Jeffrey, it's very, you know, we'd have guest actors come in sometimes and they would just kind of abbreviate and condense and get the gist of and they wouldn't be right on the, and you'd see them just go over with the script and go, do you need to look at it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're very polite. Yeah. Do you need to look at it? And I would just get a cat. I would just sit back <laughs> and go, oh, okay, here come the fireworks. <laughs> well, he's getting out the big gun now. You're in trouble, buddy. <laughs> well, to your point, I think I've heard people say, and I don't remember where this I, I, you know, I'm sure it's not like one person's idea, but they say TV is the writer's medium where they're essentially in charge. Film director, and I guess theater, theater is where yeah, actors can, really. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that as well. Yeah. Kind of interesting. So you brought up multicam versus single cam, and I want to ask maybe if we can just list. That's one of several major distinctions between these two shows that you spent the most time in your career a part of. So Friends. Multi-camera, which also means live audience, episode single camera, no audience. I really love multicam. The new show, Man with a Plan for CBS, is back doing multicam again. Is that where you're more? You feel more at home there? Well, you're telling a story chronologically. Single cam, you shoot completely out of order, and it's it's whatever serves the production schedule the best if you have a location if there's in a restaurant that there's two scenes that take place in that restaurant but there's multiple days between story-wise there's multiple days between those two scenes you know like it's the beginning and the end of the whatever the piece you're going to shoot those two scenes the same day and you might shoot the last one first before the first one just however it facilitates whatever's economically the most effective for production but with a live audience you can't do that because they won't know they won't be able to follow the story so you have to tell it in chronological order and with the live audience, you can tell if the jokes are funny. Because if you say the punchline and they don't laugh, it's probably not fucking funny. Right. 
And you really feed as the actor off of the audience, right? And the writers are all there, and they're yes. watching. They didn't laugh. Right. So that joke does not. Let's let's in second take, you can guarantee that that joke's not going to be there. There's going to be something new. Right. And you kind of try to look at spots where I'm not sure about this joke. It's been good during the week, but I, I don't know if I have a lot of faith in it. So I try to encourage the writers. Let's have a couple of backup jokes. I like the area, the neighborhood that the joke's in. I don't know if it's just right yet. And they'll be like, yeah, we feel the same way. So let's let's write some backup jokes there and we'll just plug one in. Yeah. And you can do that. Then to come back to the number of episodes in, with Friends, you guys, again, somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 to 24 season. Here with episodes, you can do maybe six, seven sometimes. First season was seven. Second, third, fourth season were nine, nine. each. Yeah. And the fifth and final season was seven again. But that was because... You know, the very interesting way, usually with a show, you have a, you have a head writer and you have a writing staff. With episodes, David and Jeffrey wrote, there was no writing staff. They wrote every word of every episode, and they wrote the whole season in advance wow. before we started shooting. So we shot the entire season like a film. I'd walk around with seven episodes in a binder. You know, on any given day, you're shooting. Where it's a scene from episode seven, then it's a scene from episode three, mm-hmm. then it's a scene from four, and then it's two scenes from five, and that'd be any given, you know, something. It, it was all over the place, just to, like I said before, to facilitate being economical with the budget. And it was tricky to keep your place. But they wrote it all, they were on set every day, they were right there, they were all over it. And if you were ever lost, you could go to them and they knew tell you exactly where you were. Well, when you're looking though at a 24 versus six, potentially, do you think that it's easier to sustain quality over six than it is over 24? Like, do you feel like there's something gained by, aside from probably having a nicer schedule for the that's, actor? That's an interesting question. Well, the schedule is different. When you're doing single cam, you're working 12, 14, 16 hour days. When you're doing multi cam, you have one long day, and that's Friday show night, but you don't go until noon and you're out at, you know, in the evening, it's as long as it takes. But. Monday's a table read, and then you go home, so that's an hour. Tuesday is a rehearsal day, that's probably four four-hour day. Wednesday, four, five-hour day. Thursday, an eight-hour day, mm-hmm. tech day, and then Friday, show day, eight to ten hours, whatever. Yeah. But single cam, it's like shooting a film. You're in makeup, and also in multi-cam, you're only really shooting. Mm-hmm. If you have some pre-shoots on the day before, fine, but the bulk of it, you're shooting one day a week. But with the single cam, you're in makeup, you're on camera all week. You don't have the rehearsal process either. Right. You get to run it and block it, and then you're shooting it. Did you miss that? The rehearsal process is where you discover things. It's really fun to discover, and it's it's fun. It's fun to find what's funnier, this yeah. or this. Yeah. Because in my opinion, the difference between comedy and drama, drama is you're telling a story, you have character development, you have conflict, you have resolution, you have all those things. In a comedy, you have the same exact things, plus it has to be funny. Right. So it's an additional challenge, but it's a, it's basically the same thing. But you have one more yeah, hoop thing. to jump through, if you will. How about when you're on NBC with Friends versus being on Showtime here? You've had to deal with uh, a lot of network standards and practices. Now you can say or show anything. Do you feel... Some people say they actually like having to... Like Seinfeld with his comedy, generally, says, I like having to work within rules. It forces me to... 
actually be more creative. Other people say, why? I think you can make a better point if you can show somebody nude or saying fuck or whatever. Where do you fall on that? I can see both sides of the argument. I really can. You know, there is a challenge to work within the confines of network television and get the point across. It's, it's sort of the challenge is to say it without saying it. And then, you know, you can say, see you next Tuesday on Showtime. Right. Now, gratuitous swearing, that's not really my cup of tea, yeah. if you will. But sometimes in that environment, that's where if it's, you know, earned, mm -hmm. you know, like I said, to use that, that word, see yeah. you next Tuesday, in, as a pet name, I thought it was a really clever way yeah. to do that. And I think it worked. But to just have the forum where you can do that and then just to you know do that it's not as effective you know what i mean but to have the forum to do that and then sort of earn those moments is is another thing the last of those kind of one versus the other i want to ask you about is with friends you guys i think average somewhere around like 30 million viewers at your height on the finale 52 million i think you're probably one of the last shows that will ever be anywhere near that ballpark like now the highest rated shows are not there and most of them Six, are eight, ten, yeah. yeah roseanne was a big surprise they did incredible numbers the landscape of television has changed that was still back when there was like four or five channels right that won't happen anymore is it because friends was that great there was other shows that were pulling those numbers. seinfeld was pulling better numbers than us mad about you was pulling frazier was pulling those shows on other networks that was a hit show number you know what i mean we weren't setting the house on fire. We were in the top, mm -hmm. you know, in the top echelon of shows, but those numbers won't be reached anymore. I think our highest one was the one after the Super Bowl. But if you can come after, if you can follow the Super Bowl on the same network and yeah. have a decent retention rate, your numbers are going to be huge. But is there, on the flip side, maybe some value these days when you have a show on a pay cable place like Showtime where? you're not even trying to do what they tried to do at the networks where it's like in a way i think they would always describe it as like in at least objectionable content you can you don't want to offend anybody so that everybody has a you know potential reason to tune in now you know that not everybody's going to watch your show so you can kind of go after a more niche audience you feel that way with, with that's a that's a good point that's an interesting way to look at it i don't know yeah i remember when <laughs> I remember when episodes premiered and I looked at the number, the number was like, I think it was almost 900,000 viewers. And I was like, well, that was fun. Let's clean out our <laughs> locker. See you later. <laughs> that's for canceled. You, for right? you to see those like, numbers. No, no, that's good. <laughs> I was like, it is? In what world is that? Because I had been away from of it for course. a while. You know, I was out, you know, out on the ranch sort of right. playing with the cows right. and, and just not. The world in, changed. Yeah, the world had changed when I got back. So the fifth season finale of episodes went out on October 8th of last year. Mm. Why did you guys end when you did, and are you happy that it ended when and the way that it did? Or was that sort of, did you feel that was imposed upon you guys? No, I, I, it was certainly not imposed upon us. It was David and Jeffrey's decision to end it there. Mm -hmm. They felt like they had told the story, and it was their decision to end it there. You know, I think it was sort of go out on top. It wasn't a horrible experience. It wasn't like we can't work together. It wasn't anything like that. It was just they felt the story had been told and tied it off with a bow, and that was the end of it. Right. All right, so here's the big picture stuff. Just first thing that comes to mind. What's your happiest memory of the Friends years? If I say, you know, the first thing that comes to mind about that and of the episodes years, just the two-parter there. I guess I don't know if it would be one event. 
I think it would be just sort of this, it felt like a 10-year education looking back on it, just sort of this like formative and successful and it's just like hard, hard to describe. Yeah. It was a great thing to have been a part of. Everyone should have an experience like that. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Not They're either. few and far between. Right. I feel very, very, very fortunate to have been a part of it. And with episodes, I think a similar thing. You know, episodes was is very critically acclaimed. It's you know people really like it. They get a kick out of it. It's shocking at times. Okay, next one. I believe you have. It definitely a... wasn't the craft service on episodes. <laughs> I can tell you that. Can't compete with no, NBC. Yeah. <laughs> no, you can't. Not in the UK. When they come around with the little triangle sandwiches with the. <laughs> cucumber and butter sandwich you're like are you fucking kidding me <laughs> <laughs> all right so i believe you have a a daughter who's 12 or 13 14, now 14 mm. okay what has it been like to watch her grow up and discover friends and she's and, funny she doesn't really she could give a shit that really? what daddy does. yeah i mean she gets a kick out of it but i don't think she's I'm her dad. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I really try to keep the two things separate. I try to be as normal as I can. I try to keep her out of the limelight. I try to just, you know, I had a normal childhood. I don't want hers to be really affected by it. So please don't fucking mention her. <laughs> <laughs> she does get a kick out of it, though. It's funny. You know? I would say, like, but yeah. even what's it like to, to have her watch it, like, for you, you put your well, heart and soul into that. Yeah, she watches it, and she 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 thinks it's funny, and she's I think it's probably weird. Right. Like she watches the new show, Man with a Plan. She, episodes she can't watch; it's a little not, too not her thing. Well, it's a little too. She's not old right, enough. Right, right, she'll right, watch right. it someday. Right. But with Man with a Plan, she watches it, and she'll say, "The guy that plays your dad is so funny." I'm like, "What about the guy that? What about your dad?" <laughs> eh. He's alright. <laughs> you know, because it, it's it's when you know someone really well. And you watch them act. You could say, "Yeah, you were good." You you don't believe it. Right. It's really it's a weird thing. It's like, "Yeah, you you were good." Right. But I know that's not you, so it's hard for me to believe. It so. looks to me like you're full of shit. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I like do. I watch things that I have good friends that are actors, and I watch them, and I'm like, "Yeah, yeah. it looks like acting to me," because <laughs> I, I know you. Now, if you know the general. The majority of people that are watching it do not know you. Can't please everyone. No, but they so they don't know the sort of intricacies of your personality like your right. close friends and family do. Right. So they can believe what you're saying. Do you know what I mean? I do. The second to last one is sort of the the requisite one that you probably get more than any other. But these days they are rebooting everything. We've seen Full House, Will and Grace, Roseanne. I know Murphy Brown's on the way. List goes on. No, it's, your, it's a no. To your question. But what's your what's David the reason? Crane and Marta don't want to do it. Also, I've answered this question before. You're talking about the Friends reboot, the reunion, right? Sure. That show was about a finite period in your life. It was like after school, and before your life really got started. And if you think about the end of Friends, now their lives are starting. Ross and Rachel go off. Monica and Chandler move to the suburbs with the babies. Phoebe and Mike are married. Joey goes off. It was that time prior to that where they were each other's emotional support system. That's what that show was about. After that, it's a different show. It's a different, I mean, what, they all get together for like a Christmas dinner? Or, I mean, it, but what, older people the, have what's friends. What's the story? Yeah, but, what's, but it was, that was what the magic of that show was. 
was how they were there for, no pun intended, how they were there for each other. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So, and I always say, nobody wants to see Joey at his colonoscopy. <laughs> nobody wants to see that. Fair enough. His but, colonoscopy's uh, fine. But yeah, I'm glad to hear it's doing well. Yes. <laughs> Last question. All clear, knock wood, right. we're all good to go. <laughs> well, uh, this is going to go well with the, with the topic of colonoscopy, but I saw that you said that you've contemplated, I think you first said this after Friends ended, but then again, more recently, that you know, even though you're only 50, you've contemplated just retiring from acting. Is that true? Yeah. Why? Well, my favorite thing to do is nothing. <laughs> I'm great at it. I swear to God, I really am. It's, it would be great to do nothing. I like my right. job. It's fun. And I feel like I've reached a point in my career where I'm afforded, and I feel really fortunate, but, but I feel like I'm afforded good opportunities to go work with good material. Right. And I've been fortunate enough to make some decent money mm -hmm. so i'm okay there you wouldn't be bored just not having Fuck, somewhere you have no, to go already <laughs> no way so this really might happen it really might happen oh, I mean, you I'm, put like, out I'm in the middle that? of a no i'm like Dan I Dan made it, it's like i i remember i was on conan o'brien's show and i made a joke saying yeah, yeah i'm gonna retire yeah. and i was kidding got a lot and of it got picked up all over the place but like you know it was a shocking thing we were here covering in the newsroom a few months ago and we get a press release Daniel Day-Lewis has announced his retirement from acting so we should be forewarned that that could come Matt LeBlanc has announced his Daniel retirement Daniel Day-Lewis retired? Yeah, that was his last movie But he didn't come out of the house that much to begin no, with No, he was pretty reclusive anyway <laughs> He was a cobbler, he did his other other yeah, things Is but... he making shoes? Is that what he was doing? <laughs> could be <laughs> Thank you very much for doing this I appreciate it Alright, thank you Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash scottfeinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.